it comes, the result is quicker than I thought. Patrick Lynch, KC, 2,035 votes. Eamon de Valera, 5,010 votes. <laughs> date was June the 23rd, 1917, the date of the Clare election. It was perhaps even more truly than 1916, the real and significant starting point of Eamon de Valera's career in Irish public life. In Easter week, he had been battalion commandant of the 3rd Battalion, fighting in Boland's Mills. He had been condemned to death, but that death sentence had been commuted to one of life imprisonment. From the May of 1916 to the June of 1917, he had been in English jails in Dartmoor, Maidstone, Lewis, Pentonville. When with the last remaining prisoners he had been released, a phase of his life seemed to have ended. It was an end and a beginning. That phase of life, which had come to an end, had its beginnings in the city of New York, 35 years earlier. My father and mother were married in a Catholic church on September the 19th, 1881. I was born in October 1882. I was baptized in a Catholic church. I was brought up here in Ireland in a Catholic home. I have lived amongst the Irish people and loved them, and loved every blade of grass that grew in this land. So writes de Valera's latest biographer, Mary C. Brummage, quoting from Eamon de Valera's own words. His mother, Catherine Cull, had come to America from Ireland with her brother Edmund three years earlier. His father, Vivian de Valera, is described on his son's birth records as having been born in Spain and as being by occupation an artist. The child was not more than three years old when his father died. The chain of events which brought Eamon de Valera home to Ireland is described by yet another biographer, M.J. McManus. The death of her husband confronted Mrs. de Valera with a problem that faces many young widows left in straitened circumstances. There was a living to be made and a child to be cared for, and in a city like New York it was extremely difficult to manage both. But almost at once a satisfactory way of solving the problem appeared. Edmund Coll, who had contracted malarial fever, was about to pay a return visit to Ireland in search of health, and it was arranged that the child should accompany him. Another uncle, Patrick Coll, who resided in the old home at Knockmore near Brewery in the county Limerick, had agreed to take over the responsibility of his upbringing. Fate was already at work, for the liner had hardly sailed when Vivian de Valera's father arrived in New York with the intention of taking charge of his grandson. The home to which the three-years-old boy came was a labourer's cottage, one of the first of those plain and unadorned houses with their acre of land attached, built not primarily for the small farmer, but for the rural worker. I know something of those cottages. I was brought up in a labourer's cottage. De Valera himself was to recall years later. Until I was 16 years of age, there was nothing of any kind on a farm, from the spancelling of a goat and the milking of a cow, I had not dealt with. But by the time he was 16 years old... It was plain enough that the boy's future was not to lie within the boundaries of a one-acre farm plot. School days, beginning in the local national school, where, according to his first biographer, David Dwan, the teacher promised him that if he persevered, he would one day have a bicycle and a grand watch and chain, brought him first to the Christian Brothers School in Charleville, and later to Black Rock College. 
school days in Black Rock to the turn of the century, student days at the Royal University, teaching appointments at Black Rock, at Rockwell, at Belvedere, and Clonliffe and Carrisford. This was the quite humdrum, not specially notable pattern of the young man's life in the years after he had left Limerick. He was 28 years old when he married the 21-year-old Sineadley Lonegoin, whom he had met in the classrooms of the Gaelic League. That was in 1910. Three years later, he was one of the hundreds who crowded the rotunda to hear the Gaelic League's vice-president, Orne McNeil, call for volunteers to band in armed reply to the challenge thrown down by the formation of Carson's Ulster Volunteers. Whether or not on that night de Valera guessed at the link which through Pierce and Clark and McDonough was to bind the new volunteers in purpose and tradition to the Fenians of the 67 Rising, he did sign an enrolment form and became a volunteer. In his own words, he had elected to act with those who were prepared to rely on force to try and win what had been denied to them by peaceful methods. It was the beginning of a new road for the man who was described by Dennis Gwynne. He was exceptionally tall, considerably over six feet in height, a very serious-looking man in his early thirties, with a long nose and spectacles and a strangely foreign complexion. Dennis Gwynne's description tallies closely enough with the memory picture of those who knew the devil era of the days between the foundation of the Volunteers in 1913 and the Rising of 1916. The Volunteer, the captain of E Company, the commandant of the 3rd Battalion, who commanded the forces of the newly proclaimed Republic in Boland's Mills during the Easter week of 1916. And there is yet another picture, a picture drawn from the memories of Captain Henson, who accepted the surrender of the Boland's Mills garrison at the end of that Easter week. Well, it was a beautiful day, and uh, it was on the 30th of April, 1916, and Fyden had quietened down considerably, and I received information that a man in green Sinn Féin uniform was in St. Patrickton's Hospital, almost opposite to my headquarters. So I went over, and seeing the man, I covered him with my revolver and told him he was my prisoner. I noticed that he was over the officer rank and ascertained later that he was Eamon de Valera, mm -hmm. commandant of the 3rd Battalion, the Irish uh, Volunteers, stationed at Boland's Bakery. I asked him if his men were prepared to surrender, and he said he had come just for that purpose. Well, what did you do with him then? Well, I took him out of the uh, hospital to our side and along Mount Street, and then I directed him to proceed down Grattan Street, that is along the side of the hospital, yes. and uh, I had a machine gun uh, covering him. And when he got to the crossroads near the bakery, I told him to halt and blow his whistle until his men joined him. And did he? Yes, he did, and they, they came out all right. And... Uh, we got them all together, and I put my men on each side of them, and after searching them for arms, uh, I marched the garrison off to uh, Ball's Ridge. By how, by how many were there altogether? There were altogether 117 officers and men. Well, what did De Valera actually look like then? Well, he looked uh, naturally tired and dirty and unkempt, but he held himself very erect, and he didn't appear afraid. So, the aftermath of that week in which a terrible beauty was born. Surrender, detention, court-martial, execution after execution of the leaders of the Rising. And on the 11th day of May, a messenger of the court came to the prison room in which Eamon de Valera was waiting. The following results of trial by Field General Court-Martial 
were announced at the headquarters Irish Command Dublin on Thursday, May the 11th. Edward de Valera, sentenced to death and sentenced commuted to penal servitude by the General Officer Commanding-in-Chief. Edward de Valera, penal servitude for life. Penal servitude for life. Prison days at Princetown on Dartmoor, at Maidstone and in Lewis Jail. In the June of 1917, he was amongst those released by the amnesty which Lloyd George declared to pave the way for the Anglo-Irish Convention which the British government had planned to hold in Dublin. When the SS Munster docked at what was then Kingstown in the early hours of June 18th, it was de Valera, as last surviving commandant of the Dublin Brigade, who led the released men ashore. Men marching as soldiers now, who had gone aboard their prison ship to England, weary and defeated men, little more than a year before. He returned to find that he had been chosen to contest a parliamentary seat at a by-election in Clare. Within a matter of days, the whirlwind election campaign in Clare was over, and de Valera had been elected a member of Parliament. It was for him an end and a beginning, the end of the humdrum family life of the young teacher, a beginning which Sean of Fuerloyne has well described. The Clare election hurled him at once into the role he has never since laid down, that of politician and statesman. He had not sought notoriety. He was by nature the recluse and the student. He had even taken part in the rising against his judgment, and he told his friends now that as for politics, he knew little of them and did not like them. Before he was much older, he was to like them far less. That summer and autumn of 1917 saw de Valera, the man hitherto known to the comparative few, transformed into the national leader. Not until October, however, was de Valera acknowledged as leader. Then the Ord Esch, the annual convention of Sinn Féin, gathered in Dublin and he was elected president. He had become a national leader who summed up the task before him in a sentence. Sinn Féin, he said, one day in 1917, has a definite policy to make English rule impossible in Ireland. Ironically enough, it was Britain's threat in the April of 1918 to apply the Conscription Act to Ireland, which gave that policy tremendous impetus. Within one month, more than 100,000 men had joined the volunteers. All sections of nationalist opinion in Ireland came together to make a common front against the threat. John Dillon, Redmond's successor as leader of the Parliamentary Party, sat down in conference with representatives of Sinn Féin and of organised labour, and with the veteran independents Tim Healy and William O'Brien to organise resistance. The threat of conscription was defeated, but within the month the leaders of Sinn Féin, de Valera amongst them, were again in English jails, arrested but not put on trial for complicity in a German plot of which no real evidence was ever produced. De Valera was imprisoned in Lincoln Jail. Lincoln Jail, the 1918 elections, the first Doyle Aaron, Ireland and America. These are the key phrases in the story of Eamon de Valera during the crowded years that followed. During the winter of 1918, while de Valera and the other leaders were imprisoned in England, general elections were held in Ireland. Sinn Féin, in the words of the London Times, swept the country, capturing 73 of the 105 seats. In January, the first Dáil Éireann met. Of the 73, 36 were still in jail, de Valera amongst them, but he was not to remain long behind bars. His escape from Lincoln Jail was brilliantly engineered by Michael Collins, and when the second session of the Oil Aaron met in private on April the 1st, 1919, de Valera was elected Priavera, 
which was translated President in the official report. It was by this title he was to be known during the next three years, during his campaigning visit to America, where his successful tour of the States marched side by side with a controversy which brought him into sharp conflict with a powerful group within the councils of the Irish-American Clonmacgoyle. It was by this title he was known all through the years of military struggle for independence, which led to the Truce and Treaty of 1921, which led, too, to the cleavage on the issue of the treaty and out of that cleavage to months of civil war. It was not until four years after the civil war had ended with the ceasefire order of April 1923 that de Valera and his newly formed Fiona Foyle party succeeded in finding a way of entering Dáil Éireann, in spite of a legislative obligation to subscribe to an oath of allegiance obnoxious to them. His party was 44 strong when they took their seats in Dáil Éireann after the general election of June 1927. A new end and a new beginning. Perhaps it was neither end nor beginning, but just part of the inevitable historical pattern, the pattern woven in the years of military struggle, in the cleavage on the issue of the treaty, in a first return to office in 1932, in the growth and development of a state. In the making of that pattern, Eamon de Valera played a notable part both at home and abroad. Abroad, at the League of Nations for apt example. There is a description of de Valera presiding at the 1932 meeting of the Assembly of the League of Nations in a book by the American writer Mary C. Brummage. This is what she says. It was the turn of Ireland's representative to preside over the session, and immediately upon his arrival he had to take the chair amidst a company of expert international statesmen. The opening speech, which the League Secretariat had prepared, as was customary for the presiding officer, was put aside by de Valera, and he chose his own words. Unless the delegates there assembled were ready to pledge the use of force against any violation of world peace, the very existence of the League, he predicted, was at stake. The delegates listened, as they had not expected to listen, to this gauche-looking man, this insular, black-suited messiah. His fearsome reputation as a revolutionary was belied by his measured logic, by his practical assessment of the future. There wasn't much applause for that departure from League protocol and custom. Stony silence is how one of the news agencies described its reception by the representatives of the world's nations. But the world's newspapers seemed to have been less distressed than the delegates were at this forthright criticism of the League's efforts to maintain world peace. What matters enormously is that someone in authority should pass on these criticisms, speaking with no cotton wool in his mouth. For once at least, the world will be inclined to applaud Mr. de Valera. It is a strange piece of irony which introduces Mr. de Valera in the character of a critic of the inadequate vigour of the League of Nations. Geneva is stunned by his refusal to repeat the customary rigmarole of pious platitudes drafted for him. Looking back over the chaos of a world war, the inadequacies of the League of Nations may seem far away. But in the chorus of world press approval which greeted de Valera's action, an article in the Neue Zürcher Zeitung very aptly puts that action in the pattern of events which began to emerge from the devastated streets of the Dublin of 1916. Eamon de Valera is probably the first president of the Council of the Assembly of the League who has heard sentence of death passed upon him, which is perhaps still, as it was in Stendhal's time, the only proof that a man cannot be bought. I heard this man eleven years ago, speaking in the Doyle, 
which was then still an assembly of rebel conspirators, a good third of whom could share the tragic honour that an English court-martial had accorded to him. Now as then, he speaks in a voice that has no seducingly melodious tones, but is matter-of-fact and earnest, with a much greater restraint in expression than might be expected of the adventurous leader, the conspirator and agitator who has waged war against the might of England, with such simplicity of feeling that has been shown by no other living man, not even Gandhi. It was during those days, prior to the outbreak of the Second World War, that the Irish Constitution of 1937 was enacted. In a broadcast to the people of Ireland and to the Irish in America, Mr. de Valera had this to say of the Constitution. In that Constitution, the traditional aspirations of our people for national independence, national unity, and the unfettered control of their domestic and foreign affairs have been set as the basic principles of the law by which we are henceforth to be governed. Within that Constitution, the unity of the national territory can be restored. Within it, the people's right to enter into, determine, or maintain any relationship with other nations which may be open to them can be freely exercised. Within it, any man or group of men commanding the support of the majority in the national parliament can legally carry through any program in the domain of our internal or external relations, which he or they may conceive to be in the national interest. Looking back over the years, it is easy to see again the major events which played so large a part in the making of the pattern of Irish life in our times. The restoration to Ireland of the naval ports of Cove, Bearhaven and Loch Swilly in 1939. The determination of all parties in Ireland to remain neutral during the Second World War. The dangers of wartime days in which the threat of invasion was never far away. There is one other memory of Mr. de Valera in those days which will occur to many. On Sunday, May the 13th, 1945, Mr. Winston Churchill was broadcasting his victory message to the world. Rather unexpectedly, he suddenly turned to talk of Ireland and of Ireland's neutrality. He said that Ireland's neutrality had enabled hostile aircraft and submarines to close Britain's western approaches, and that although there were times during the days of war when it seemed that Britain's survival could be assured only by the violent seizure of Ireland's southern ports, Britain had magnanimously refrained from violating Ireland's neutrality. That was a speech which caused resentment in Ireland. Three days later, Mr de Valera went to Radio Erin to broadcast a reply, and all Ireland listened to him. Certain newspapers have been very persistent in looking for my answer to Mr. Churchill's recent broadcast. I know the kind of answer I am expected to make. I know the answer that first springs to the lips of every man of Irish blood who heard or read that speech, no matter in what circumstances or in what part of the world he found himself. I know the reply I would have given a quarter of a century ago. But I have deliberately decided that this is not the reply I shall make tonight. I shall strive not to be guilty of adding any fuel to the flames of hatred and passion 
which have continued to be fed, promise to burn up whatever is left by the war of decent human feeling in Europe. Allowances can be made for Mr. Churchill's statement, however unworthy, in the first flush of his victory. No such excuse can be found for me in this quiet atmosphere. There are, however, some things which it is my duty to say, some things which it is essential to say. I shall try to say them as dispassionately as I can. Mr. Churchill makes it clear that in certain circumstances he would have violated our neutrality and that he would justify his action by Britain's necessity. It seems strange to me that Mr. Churchill does not see that this, if accepted, would mean that Britain's necessity would become a moral code. And that when this necessity was sufficiently great, other people's rights were not to count. It is quite true that other great powers believe in this same code in their own regard and have behaved in accordance with it. That is precisely why we have the disastrous successions of wars. World War number one, World War number two, and shall it be World War number three? Surely Mr. Churchill must see that if his contention be admitted in our regard, a like justification can be framed for similar acts of aggression elsewhere. And no small nation adjoining a great power could ever hope to be permitted to go its own way in peace. It is indeed fortunate that Britain's necessity did not reach the point when Mr. Churchill would have acted. All credit to him that he successfully resisted the temptation, which I have no doubt many times assailed him in his difficulties, and to which I freely admit many leaders might have easily succumbed. It is indeed hard for the strong to be just to the weak, but acting justly always has its rewards. The moment of national resentment, which called forth that quiet rejoinder, has long since passed into history. Since then, there have been other moments which turned the spotlight of public attention on him and de Valera, moments in and out of office, at home and abroad, at the Council of Europe, when he outlined the compromise solution to the problems delaying the creation of a European political authority, a compromise solution later destined to be formally and practically approved by the 15 foreign ministers who formed the Council. If the nations here on the mainland of the continent consider that they cannot wait for us, perhaps they should consider going on without us by an agreement amongst themselves for a closer union. It is with no desire to delay progress towards a union that some of us have spoken against the attempt at immediate federation. Soon after that notable contribution to the deliberations of the statesmen of Europe met in council, the voice of Eamon de Valera was heard again. On the 25th of June, 1959, taking and subscribing his declaration of office as President of Ireland. Time Eamon de Valera. Time Eamon de Valera. Thou yellow and the star yarrow. Thou yellow and the star yarrow. 
The office of President of Ireland is in its dignity and function removed from the conflicts and tensions of politics in the everyday sense of the word. But its duties still belong to the political order in perhaps a deeper sense. For the President embodies in his person the sovereignty of the people, and as first citizen he must represent his fellow citizens on occasions of national and international significance. The presidency of Eamon de Valera was marked by many such occasions, two or three at least of which will long remain in the memory of the Irish people. There was a day of high honour in March 1962, St. Patrick's Day, when the national celebrations of the 15th centenary of the death of St. Patrick ended with a state visit by the President and Mrs. de Valera to Pope John XXIII. To the spiritual and historical significance of this event, a very moving human quality was added by the warmth and simplicity of the beloved Pope's welcome to his guests. Another year, another visit. This time, the President was Ireland's host to one of the most welcome visitors ever to come among us. Another President, the young head of a great state, who paid this tribute to Eamon de Valera. Spreading over the period of a half a century, he has expressed in his own life and in the things that he stood for, the very best of Western thought and equally important, Western action. The tragedy that occurred a year after that memorable occasion summoned President de Valera once again to represent the Irish nation overseas when he took his place among the mourning nations at the funeral of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. But there was to be a further visit to the United States of America. On the 28th of May, 1964, the President of Ireland addressed a joint session of the two Houses of Congress. It was a moment of no little glory in the history of the two nations, and for the President himself, a moment of joy. Mr. Speaker, I would like to confess and confess freely that this is an outstanding day in my own life. To see recognized as I have here in full the recognition of the rights of the Irish people and the independence of the Irish people in a way that was not at all possible 45 years ago. I have longed to come back and say this to you and through you to the people as a whole. There remained, as President de Valera reminded his audience, the problem of a cruel petition, which diminished the significance of his presence. This was a cause for deep regret, but more important, a reason for continued endeavour fired by hope. 
I salute you in prospect. The representative of Ireland, who may be permitted to address you as I have been permitted, and who will be able with full heart joyfully announce to you that our severed country has been reunited and that the last source of enmity between the British and Irish peoples has disappeared and that at last we can be truly friends. A memory of Eamon de Valera, which will be long held by many, is of a March day in 1965, when the remains of Roger Casement were laid to rest in Glasnevin. It was a day of snow and sleet and bitter cold, but the President stood erect and unwavering by the gravehead through all the solemn rites of church and state, and then added his own simple and moving tribute. This grave, like the graves of the other patriots, who lie in this cemetery, like the graves in Arbor Hill, like the grave at Bordenstown, and the grave in Don Patrick, and the grave in Temple Patrick, and the grave at Grey, at Grey Abbey. These graves will become, will be this grave like these others, will become a place of pilgrimage, for which our young people will come here and get renewed inspiration and renewed determination that they also will do everything that in them lies so that this nation, which has been one in the past, will be one again in the future by the cooperation of its people and their loving rivalry to make this land worthy of all the sacrifices that have been made for it in the past. In 1966, the President was re-elected for a second term and thus presided as Head of State at the Jubilee celebrations of the 1916 Rising. He spoke many times during the celebrations. One of the most moving of these occasions was the opening of the Garden of Remembrance. The purpose of the Garden is to remind us, those who see it or enter it, of the sacrifices of the past, of the struggles and suffering over the centuries by which it was in, the endeavor was made to maintain or to secure Irish independence. It is also a challenge to this generation and the generations to come that we should prove worthy of all these sacrifices that were made over the centuries in the past to maintain this as a separate nation. We have a wonderful opportunity of doing so now. Here in this part of Ireland, the whole future of the nation, so to speak, is in trust. The trust to see, insofar as it is possible for them to see, to see that all the dreams of the men who suffered in the past and for whom, in whose memory this garden is laid out, that uh, the, the, the dreams and ideals of these men would be fully realized.
Eamon de Valera, a man ever conscious of Ireland's past, kept his heart and mind firmly fixed on Ireland's future. On his 80th birthday, when asked what future he would wish for his country, he answered in a simple sentence. Well, the future I would look, hope for would be that we would continue to be true to ourselves and be worthy of a very great past, and if we do that, we certainly have nothing to daunt us in the future. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.